the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, this is Tuesday already, the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartes producing engineering in Seattle. Today I'm looking forward to a conversation with Arlene Pelican. She is a spokesperson for the National Marriage Week. The theme this year is Love Beyond Words. Uh, National Marriage Week is coming up February the 7th through the 14th. You can find out more at marriageweek.org. And I would encourage you to do that if you're married and would like to continue to live well together. Anyway, we'll talk with her in the second hour of today's program. So we're looking forward to that. But first, some of the day's headlines. Of course, today is the New Hampshire primary. Nikki Haley told supporters at a rally in Salem, New Hampshire, on the eve of the first primary in the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, that we've got a lot On the line here. Well, I think everyone pretty much knew that. Well, former President Trump, a couple of hours later, and some 60 miles north of Haley in Laconia, New Hampshire, emphasized to the crowd at his rally that tomorrow is the day that each and every one of you is going to cast the most important vote of your entire life. Wow, the most important vote of your entire life. Well, after a convincing 30 point victory in Iowa, Low turnout GOP presidential caucuses a week ago. Trump is aiming for an encore performance in the Granite State as he tries to bring the Republican nomination race to an early ending. For Haley, the former two-term South Carolina governor who served as U.N. ambassador in the Trump administration, the New Hampshire primary may be her best and possibly last chance to slow down or derail the former president's march toward renomination. Haley was down by double digits in most of the final public opinion surveys to the former president, who's the commanding frontrunner for the GOP nomination as he makes his third straight White House run. Pointing to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' suspension of his campaign on Sunday, which left Trump and Haley at the um, as the last major Republican candidates in the GOP race, Trump highlighted that now we're down to two people, and I think one person will be gone probably tomorrow. Now is the time for the Republican Party to come together, end quote. However, New Hampshire, where independent voters who make up roughly 40 percent of the electorate can uh, vote in either major party's contest and have long played an influential role in state's storied presidential primary, uh, may be fertile ground for Haley. The final surveys indicate Trump's uh, dominating among registered Republicans, with Haley grabbing majority support among independents. However, there there are likely more Republicans than independents who will vote today in GOP uh, primary. Republic uh, Haley rather uh, publicly brushed off the polls, made a last minute pitch, telling her supporters to go to the polls tomorrow which, of course, is today, and take five people with you. She also pledged in a couple of uh, interviews that she's moving on to her home state, regardless of her finish in New Hampshire. South Carolina's February 24th primary is the next major contest on the GOP nominating calendar following Tuesday's showdown in New Hampshire. Texas Attorney General 
Ken Paxton on Monday, he promised that the fight is not over after the Supreme Court yesterday granted an emergency appeal by the uh, Biden administration to allow Border Patrol agents to resume cutting razor wire set up by Texas at the southern border. The Supreme Court temporarily order allows Biden to continue his illegal effort to aid the foreign invasion of America, Paxton said in a statement. The destruction of Texas border barriers will not help uh, enforce the law or keep American citizens safe, he said. This fight is not over, and I look forward to defending our state's sovereignty. Well, the court yesterday ruled in a 5-4 decision to allow the federal government to resume the removal of the fence installed by Texas along the southern border near Eagle Pass while litigation continues. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined the three liberal justices in a 5-4 vote to allow the practice to resume. Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh would have denied the application to vacate injunction, the court said. Tensions were heightened this month when Texas seized the Shelby Park area of Eagle Pass and blocked Border Patrol from entering. Well, that move, too, was brought to uh, uh, has brought a threat of litigation from the administration. Well, the Supreme Court this week rejected an appeal from Hunter Biden's former business partner regarding his criminal conviction for his alleged role in defrauding a Native American tribe. Devin Archer, who served on Ukrainian energy company Burisma's board alongside Hunter Biden, previously lost an appeal before the high court. A federal judge sentenced Archer to prison in 2018 for allegedly defrauding the tribe by fraudulently issuing $60 million in tribal bonds after he was convicted by a jury. However, his conviction was thrown out in late 2018 by U.S. District Judge Ronnie Abrams in Manhattan because she was left with an unwavering concern that Archer is innocent of the crimes charged. According to Reuters, well, Archer's conviction was reinstated by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals a month before the 2020 election, and he received a one year and one day prison sentence in February of the same of 22. Despite the uh, sentence, Archer's lawyer, he has maintained his innocence and said they intend to file a series of appeals, which has de- uh, delayed Archer serving his sentence. Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota says President Biden should be on the ballot in Tuesday's New Hampshire Democrat presidential primary. And Phillips, who in October launched a long shot primary challenge against the president, is taking aim at the Democratic Party for keeping him off the ballot in some uncommon uh, upcoming rather pri- uh, primaries. Phillips, one of the wealthiest members of Congress, launched his campaign for the White House in late October, and he's focusing most of his time and resources on New Hampshire, where the president's name won't be on the ballot in the state's unsanctioned Democrat primary. Well, top Democrats in the state have launched a write-in campaign for the president. Uh, Phillips says he invested $5 million of his own money in his uh, White House bid, a lot more than he intended, he noted in an interview. But he said the investment may be starting to pay off as grassroots donors are really starting to pop up. Well, his ads are playing on New Hampshire airwaves in an effort to improve his name recognition. Asked where he needs to finish in New Hampshire's primary, Phillips said, We started at zero just 10 weeks ago. My name is not yet well known. And I think getting in the 20s would be an extraordinary accomplishment. Well, that appears to be a lowering of expectations from just a few weeks earlier. But the latest poll in the Granite State uh, Democrat primary indicates Phillips is far short of that goal. He stands at 10 percent. In a University of New Hampshire CNN poll conducted earlier this month, a point ahead of best-selling author and spiritual advisor Marianne Williamson, who's making her second straight White House run. Sixty-three percent of those questioned in the survey said they'd write Biden's name in.
An Obama-appointed judge ruled in favor of a Pennsylvania college professor who sued his employer over critical race theory trainings he alleged were anti-white, including one that said white teachers are a problem, according to a lawsuit. A former professor at Penn State, Abington, Zach DePiro, sued for race discrimination after he was allegedly subjected to training that the English language is racist and the embodiment of white supremacy, along with additional tirades against white people in professional development sessions and meetings, according to the lawsuit. He explained in an interview that the trainings were traumatic since he can't get them out of his head. Um, Judge Wendy Beetlestone of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania ruled earlier this month that Professor DePiro uh, had solid grounds to proceed in his race discrimination lawsuit, despite Penn State's request for it to be dismissed. Uh, The judge said that discussing the influence of racism on our society does not violate federal law. But when considering whether to allow the professor's suit to progress, she considered the type of CRT training used at Penn State Abington. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Coming up later in the program, a conversation with Arlene Pelican. She's the spokesperson for the National Marriage Week, Love Beyond Words. This year, it's the 7th through the 14th, as is the tradition. You can find out more at marriageweek.org, where they have great resources to help you and your spouse work on your marriage. She'll be joining us later in the second hour of today's program. Los Angeles Times uh, Letters uh, editor Paul Thornton implored Californians leaving the state to stop criticizing it on the way out. To the people leaving California, he wrote, may the road rise to meet you as you seek better lives in new places. Now, can you please extend some goodwill for those of us who remain? Well, Thornton asked in a Saturday piece headlined commentary, if you want to leave, fine, but don't insult California on the way out. He went on to describe how staggering numbers of Californians are fleeing to other states. More than 800,000 moved away in 2022 and many thousands more left last year. Well, often the departees cash in hand from the sale of their one million dollar bungalows feel the need to express disdain for their home state and even some anger, too. He wrote, if you must leave California for Texas, Arizona, New England or anywhere else, don't be a person who trash talks the home of 39 million people. He pleaded, of course, they're not trash talking their homes. They're trash talking the Leaders who have the authority to do something about the problems plaguing their home. Well, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, California lost a net 75,423 people in 2023. Well, a few years ago, social media was the place for young people to share their monetary accomplishments by posting the luxuries they bought and bragging about all kinds of comings and goings. But today there seems to be a shift in posts related to money. Well, now, according to users on TikTok and other social media platforms, it's all about being humble and even frugal and being proud of it. Well, this new trend is called loud budgeting, and it's gaining traction as a uh, no shame approach amid today's personal finance realities, especially for Gen Z. Now, TikTok posters, uh, for example, are saying they can't venture out for dinner, can't buy brand new clothes. They have to buy secondhand instead and don't have any extra cash to spend during the month after they pay their rent, car payments and credit card bills. Loud budgeting is a part philosophy, part practicality, says a personal finance expert with CardRates.com based in San Francisco. Essentially, it's being candid about your financial circumstances and what you are doing to live at or beneath your income level. 
Well, rather than uh, project a false sense of prosperity and display consumer goods that they can't really afford, people are living more honestly and openly with respect to their personal budget, she says. You know, kind of like your grandparents and your great-grandparents living within your means. It's not really a new phenomenon. Writing about it on a Facebook or other social media post, that's the new part. Well, Israel has offered a temporary ceasefire proposal. They're proposing a two-month ceasefire with Hamas in exchange for the release of all remaining hostages in the Gaza Strip. Israel and Hamas have been in a months-long war in Gaza after the group launched a terrorist attack against the country on the 7th of October, killing over 1,200 civilians uh, and kidnapping hundreds of others. Through uh, gutter and Egyptian negotiators, Israel is now offering Hamas a temporary two-month ceasefire and the release of an unspecified number of Palestinian prisoners in exchange for the more than 130 remaining hostages in Gaza. Well, the first phase would be uh, would see the release of women, men over the age of 60, and hostages who are in critical medical condition, the official said. The next phase would include the release of female soldiers, men under the age of 60, Uh, who are not soldiers, Israeli male soldiers, and the bodies of hostages. Hamas was still firing rockets when the first pause was agreed to, and they're killing hostages now. No doubt it wouldn't shock me if Hamas agreed but continued to attack Israel. These are terrorists that can't be trusted. Well, the U.K. and U.S. task force attacked eight Houthi targets The U.S. and U.K. launched the strikes against eight targets on Monday. The two countries said in a continuing bid to stop the Yemeni rebels group uh, attacks on ships transiting the Red Sea. The strikes marked the second major assault by a joint force of the two countries and at least the sixth time overall that the U.S. has targeted the group, which is armed, funded and supported by Iran. Two Navy SEALs declared have been declared dead over the weekend after a mishap in the Arabian Sea earlier this month. They were identified Monday as Christopher Chambers, 37, and Nathan Gage Ingram, 27. The pair went missing in rough seas during a nighttime shipboarding mission that, despite the tragedy, resulted in a seizure of Iranian-made missile components. U.S. military officials said... Uh, Biden ended his only public event of the day without acknowledging the deaths of the two U.S. Navy SEALs, irking some uh, who have been following events there. In other news, uh, Pakistan launched retaliatory airstrikes on Iranian militants. Border tensions in the Middle East are flaring. Pakistan launched strikes on separatist militants inside Iran last Thursday in a retaliatory attack two days after Tehran said it struck the bases of another group within Pakistani territory. Iranian media said several missiles hit a village in uh, a province that borders Pakistan, killing at least nine people, including four children. The tit-for-tat strikes are the highest profile cross-border intrusions in recent years, and they've raised alarm over wider instability in the Middle East since the war between Israel and Hamas erupted in October, or rather on October 7th. CNN reported the new strikes mean both Pakistan and Iran have now taken the extraordinary step of attacking militants on each other's soil this week at a time of expanding conflict in the Middle East and wider region. Well, drug makers have drastically increased their prices. They kicked off 2024 by raising the list prices of Ozempic, uh, Monjaro, and dozens of other widely used medicines. Companies including Novo Nordisk and the maker of Ozempic and Eli Lilly, which sells some um, Monjaro, 
raised the list price on 775 brand-name drugs during the first half of January. The median increase is higher than the rate of inflation, which ticked up at about 3.4% in December. Among the notable increases, the price of Ozempic, a diabetes treatment that many people are taking to lose weight, went up 3.5% to nearly $970 for a month's supply. Monjaro, also a diabetes drug in the same class that's also widely used for weight loss, climbed 4.5% to almost $1,070 a month. Novo said the change was due to market conditions and inflation, while Lilly said it determines its prices based on a drug's value, efficacy, and safety. Companies normally increase the list prices of their products in the first few weeks of a new year. Some companies said the list price wouldn't impact patients' access to the drug because they will still be covered by insurance. However, premiums could still be inflated. Well, Macy's plans to lay off about 13% of its corporate staff and close five stores in a bid to trim costs and redirect spending to improve the shopping experience of customers. Now, when I go into a Macy's today, finding a, an employee that can ring something up is something of a challenge, so one wonders what the future holds. The job cuts total roughly 2,350 positions, or 3.5% of their overall workforce, excluding seasonal hires, according to a memo sent to employees on Thursday afternoon last week. Macy's uh, plans to add more automation to its supply chain and it's outsourcing some roles, according to the memo, which didn't specify which jobs. It also is reducing management layers to speed decision making. The company opened its first Macy's in 1858 and now operates about 500 Macy's branded stores, as well as 55 of the more upscale Bloomingdale's chain. Macy's stock price has dropped 75% from a peak of $73 a share in 2015. Since then, it's closed nearly 300 stores, almost one-third of all of its stores, and operates about 700 across its brands. Several U.S. military personnel were injured in a missile attack Saturday night by Iranian-backed rebels in al-Assad Air Base in Iraq, the Pentagon reported, at about 6.30 p.m. local time. Multiple ballistic missiles and rockets were fired by Iranian-backed militants from western Iraq, U.S. Central Command said in a statement posted on social media. The base's air defense systems intercepted most of the missiles, but others impacted the base, CENTCOM reported. This marks the 144th attack on U.S. troops sanctioned in Iraq and Syria since Hamas launched its attack on Israel and sparked the Israeli Hamas war. It's also one of the largest such attacks and the second in which militia groups have fired ballistic missiles. The U.S. has 900 troops in Syria, 2,500 in Iraq on a mission to advise and assist local forces trying to prevent a resurgence of the Islamic State, which in 2014 seized large parts of both countries before being defeated. President Biden canceled another $5 billion in student debt for 74,000 borrowers. After all, it is an election year. The administration has approved an additional $5 billion in debt cancellation for roughly 74,000 student loan borrowers. The president said many of the borrowers impacted by his latest student loan debt handout are public sector workers like teachers and firefighters who will have their debt erased after 10 years of public service. The latest round of student debt cancellation brings the total amount canceled under Biden to $136.6 billion for more than 3.7 million Americans, according to uh, the Department of Education. Now, that doesn't mean the debt is eliminated. It means it was shifted to taxpayers who did not borrow the money. 
or benefit by its borrowing. It comes after the U.S. Supreme Court blocked Biden's initial student loan handout last year, which would have cost more than $400 billion. But the president is not deterred. The U.S. Supreme Court said, no, it's unconstitutional. The president, $136 billion more in debt relief. We're going to continue uh, taking a look at the daily headline, but we're also going to talk with Arlene uh, Pelican on the National Marriage Week coming up um, February 7th through the 14th. Love Beyond Words is this year's theme. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Arlene Pelican will join me coming up in the second hour of today's program. She's a spokesperson for the National Marriage Week. The theme this year, Love Beyond Words. It started, I think, in 1996, February 7th through the 14th. They've got great resources to help you in your marriage. Marriageweek.org. Check it out. We'll have a conversation coming up at 5. Well, the White House now acknowledges that border security is important, but then proceeded to list their reasons illegal migrants should come. Well, since the president took office, the U.S.-Mexico border has seen record amounts of illegal crossings. The fiscal year 23 alone saw a massive number of uh, crossings um, on the southern border with a record 3.2 million migrants encountered. This number doesn't include gotaways or those who have avoided detection. At the same time, more than 8 million illegal aliens have entered the United States. Yet the administration remains uh, pretty hush on the uh, the crisis it has created. On Friday, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre, she insisted that border security is important and that the administration is working toward a plan to stem the millions of illegal migrants from entering the U.S. However, at the same time, she bragged about all of the taxpayer-funded services the president had provided. Um, RNC Research says that Corinne Jean-Pierre says sending illegal immigrants to Democrat-run sanctuary cities is inhumane and demoralizing then bragged about all the taxpayer-funded services they provided uh, those very same folks. Well, the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar are uh, putting more pressure on Israel to accept a peace plan. The U.S., Egypt, Qatar, they're pushing Israel and Hamas to accept a comprehensive plan that would end the war, see the release of hostages held in Gaza, and ultimately lead to full normalization for Israel with its neighbors and talks for the establishment of a Palestinian state. Is that even possible? Is that what uh, Hamas wants, a Palestinian state where Israel continues to exist? Well, the plan, whose complete implementation would take 90 days, would reportedly bring all fighting to an extended halt, during which time the Palestinian terror group in the first stage would free all civilians. Israel would simultaneously release hundreds of Palestinian security prisoners, pull out of Gaza cities, allow freedom of movement in the Strip, cease drone surveillance over Gaza, and double the amount of aid entering the Hamas-controlled area. I'm not sure what that says about future security for Israel. Uh, Israeli negotiators have continued to push for a two-week halt to fighting to allow for hostages and prisoners uh, to be exchanged and have been reluctant to discuss plans that envision a permanent ceasefire, according to Egyptian officials. Hamas, on the other hand, is seeking a gain uh, to gain maximum advantage from the captives it holds and only wants to trade them for thousands of Palestinian prisoners and a permanent ceasefire. The Gaza leader believes that the Israelis will prioritize hostages over the battlefield and that Hamas needs to hold out as long as possible to exhaust Israel and keep international pressure on it, according to officials. 
Well, in California, leftists are coming back for a third bite at the rotten apple of racial preferences, having been resoundingly defeated in the affirmative action referendum in 2020. The establishment is trying to reintroduce uh, the type of... um, a backdoor policy that has already failed instead of an upfront referendum re- reinstating racial preferences, which they know they will lose. The progressives on the uh, of the once um, golden state this time are, are trying to let the governor find exceptions that will put that will gut the ban on affirmative action. One assemblyman uh, um, said in response to the persistent issue of inequalities and the recognition of Prop 209 as an impediment, the California State Assembly approved ACA 7, a measure aimed at amending Prop 209. ACA 7 focuses on enabling evidence-based, culturally specific programs to reduce disparities among specific groups, including marginalized genders and sexual orientations. Assemblymember Dr. Corey Jackson states, yesterday we took a significant step toward addressing uh, systemic disparities. ACA 7 aims to create positive change and improve outcomes for those disproportionately affected by systemic racism and discrimination. We'll see what happens next. Well, Alec Baldwin has been indicted with involuntary manslaughter uh, charges for shooting and killing a film director on set. Uh, Baldwin is headed to trial over the death of cinematograph, uh, I should say cinematographer um, uh, Hutchins, who was killed in 2021 after the actor's uh, prop gun fired a live round of ammunition on the Rust film set. The decision to indict Baldwin was announced on Friday after a New Mexico grand jury heard evidence presented by special prosecutor Carl Morrissey and Jason Lewis. He was charged with one count of involuntary manslaughter. If convicted, Baldwin would face up to 18 months in prison. A trial date has not yet been set. Baldwin can enter a formal plea with or without a court arraignment, setting in motion preparations for the trial. The indictment provides prosecutors with two alternative standards uh, for the felony involuntary manslaughter charge against Baldwin. One would be uh, based on the negligent use of a firearm. And a second alternative for prosecutors is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Baldwin caused the death of Hutchins without due caution or circumspection, also defined as an act committed with total disregard or indifference for the safety of others. Well, in a classic example of polaganda, the Wall Street Journal is touting a recent poll from the University of Michigan showing that consumer sentiment about the state of the U.S. economy rose by some 14 points last month. Bidenomics is working, see? But is it? Well, digging deeper, the poll shows that while consumers' view on the state of the economy have risen from the lowest The lows of 2020, when inflation hit a 40-year high, they're still only now just matching 2009 recession-era numbers. Furthermore, actual economic numbers from last month showed inflation going back up again as consumers are continuing to have to shell out more for necessities like food and housing. It becomes clear midway through the Wall Street Journal article that the primary focus of the 2024 election and not the actual state of the economy Sure, if people believe the economy is getting better, they will presumably help Joe Biden. But reports like this amount to economic wish projection in the hopes of moving political opinion. And biased reporting like this is no surprise, given the facts that 96 percent of journalists hold to one side of the ledger as opposed to the other. In other news, the Department of Justice condemning uh, uh, Uvalde shooting uh, issued a report Occasionally, the Justice Department gets something right, even during the administrations of uh, both Obama and Biden. During Obama's years, it was the report that 
while there were problems in the uh, Ferguson Police Department, Officer Darren Wilson's deadly encounter with Michael Brown, which kicked off the hands up, don't shoot narrative, was not one of them. This time, it's the Department of Justice 600-page report on the mass murder at the school in Nuvalde, Texas, in 2022. At the time, Mark Alexander provided an extensive timeline of the attack and response, uh, noting the many failures of responding law enforcement officers. Among what the Department of Justice called cascading failures, it took 77 minutes for officers to enter the school and confront the killer during which time he slaughtered 21 people, including 19 third and fourth grade children. Well, that delay also affected the medical response for victims, which may have cost lives. Most of the officials overseeing the response that day have been fired or retired. The only thing to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. In this case, the good guys with guns waited outside while the bad guy took his time. As a result, we lost 21 innocents. Well, they're still crossing um, the border. Back in October, we learned about CBP-1, uh, team, Bi- uh, team Biden's mobile phone app for illegal aliens. At the time, it was noted that the administration was turning loose 96% of those who came into the country unlawfully. CBP-1 is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play apps, and it allows some um, inadmissible aliens to make an appointment to fly directly to airports in the interior of the United States, bypassing the border altogether. Um, the Center for Immigration Studies uh, reported, well, it sounds to us like one more dereliction, one more impeachable offense. But now those crossing our southern border illegally aren't even bothering with Joe Biden's app. As the Washington Free Beacon reported, for months, the administration blew past its self-imposed cap on asylum applications through the CBP-1 app. And then in December, applications plummeted. Well, that's because uh, migrants were finding it easier to enter the country illegally than to use the lawful or somewhat lawful app. And why might they, uh, that be the case? Because, as it turns out, using the app is entirely unnecessary. Why wait to be scheduled for an interview to come over when you can immediately cross, surrender to Border Patrol, and get stamped with a court date in the next decade? Ask one anonymous and obviously frustrated senior department of Homeland Security official. Indeed, why bother? Just come on over. And that's apparently what's happening. Well, NBC sacked Jesus Christ. Well, what do I mean? Football is a religious experience. Evidence of this can be seen before and after games all across the country and at all levels, from youth football to the NFL. We see it not only when entire teams pray uh, beforehand, such as when the now national champion Michigan Wolverines took to a, uh, the knee prior to their foot college football playoff game against Alabama. But we also see it afterward when God-fearing, Jesus-loving individuals such as C.J. Stroud, the widely a successful rookie quarterback in the NFL's Houston Texans, uh, gave praise to his Lord and Savior during the post-game interviews. All of this was deeply a grading to the largely leftist types who run our nation's TV networks, but they're rather powerless to stop it. Well, unless, of course, they edit out a player's comments after the fact, which is precisely what NBC did to Stroud after his outstanding playoff performance and post-game interview last weekend. You can check out the editing job by the network. What we are missing was Stroud immediately thanking his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good on CJ and shame on NBC. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Arlene Pelicane. She's a spokesperson for National Marriage Week coming up February 7th through 14th. We'll talk about the resource and why it's important. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, China's population is in serious decline thanks to China's infamous one-child policy in place from 1979 through 2015. The communist nation is now threatened by the precipitous population decline. Well, in 2022, for the first time in 60 years, China's population shrank. Well, last year, the Chinese population continued its decline as India surpassed it, becoming the most populated nation on the planet. And while China still boasts a population of more than 1.4 billion, it declined by 2 million last year, which might not seem like much given the size of its overall population, but it presents an ominous reality. China's population decline is accelerating. Also, China has an aging population that has continued to witness a birth rate decline year over year for the past seven years in a row. The total of 9.02 million babies were born in China in 2023. That's down from 9.56 million the year before. To make matters worse, China's young people are putting off marriage until, well, later as they seek to get educated and into a career. In response to this population decline, Beijing has engaged in a propaganda campaign to encourage Chinese women to have multiple babies, calling it patriotic and promising them tax benefits and cheaper housing. But so far, the propaganda hasn't worked. Well, sadly, the two missing seals are now listed as deceased in a grim update to a story covered last week. The search for two Navy SEALs who went missing off the coast of Somalia 11 days ago, now it's been more than that, um, has been called off and they're now presumed lost at sea. The two warriors were on a mission to seize Iranian weapons aboard ships supplying weapons to Houthis in Yemen. One SEAL had attempted to board a small boat and fell into rough seas. As is protocol, a second SEAL jumped into the sea to rescue the first. As USNI News reported, We regret to announce that after a 10-day exhaustive search, our two missing U.S. Navy SEALs have not been located and their status has been changed to deceased. The two special operators are the first two deaths of U.S. forces since the American naval buildup in the eastern Mediterranean and Middle East following the October 7th Hamas attack on southern Israel. U.S., Spanish, and Japanese naval forces searched more than 21,000 square miles for the missing soldiers. A Delta Airlines flight aboard a Boeing aircraft lost its nose tire moments before it was supposed to take off from Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport on Saturday. That's according to air traffic control audio posted online. Well, the Delta Boeing 757, it was cleared for takeoff and was taxiing on the runway when one of the nose wheels came loose and simply rolled off the runway behind the aircraft and down an embankment, according to audio posted online by VASA Aviation. Well, the 75 on the runway just lost the nose tire. A pilot who identified himself as being on the plane behind the Boeing 757 over uh, said over the radio. Thanks for that. Uh, sounds like uh, we got a problem. The 757 pilot responded. Yeah, we saw that tire roll off the runway to the south, the other pilot says. Looks like it uh, went off the runway, probably down the bank uh, down there. Of course, they're on scene. Well, the pilots and air traffic control can be heard discussing getting a maintenance crew out uh, onto the runway to locate the tire as other aircraft preparing for takeoff were forced to wait behind the disabled plane. Well, eventually, the other planes were rerouted while the Delta Boeing 757 was forced to sit on the runway for about three hours 
while waiting to be towed, according to VASA Aviation. Well, the Turkish parliament voted on Tuesday to approve Sweden's NATO membership bid, bringing the Nordic country one step closer to joining the military alliance after months of delays. Of the 346 members of parliament who voted, 287 were in favor of Sweden's accession to the 55 um, uh, voted, uh, I should say, voted to reject it. Four others abstained from voting. The vote was the second step of Turkey's uh, ratification process after the Parliament's Foreign Affairs Commission approved the bid last month. Turkey's president can now sign the protocol into law. The outcome on Tuesday cleared a significant hurdle for the Nordic country's accession to the uh, military alliance, with Hungary now set uh, to be the only member state that has not yet ratified Sweden's accession. However, on Tuesday, Hungary's uh, prime minister, he said he had invited his Swedish uh, counterpart, Uh, to visit Hungary to negotiate the terms of Sweden's accession. Sweden and Finland applied for NATO membership in May of 22, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier that year. Finland joined NATO in April of 2023, doubling the alliance's border with Russia. But Sweden has faced numerous delays in its path to accession. We'll continue to follow that story. Well, 24 soldiers killed On the deadliest day of the Israeli forces in Gaza's combat, 24 Israeli soldiers were killed during fighting there on Monday, the military said, in the deadliest day for its troops inside the battered enclave since the war with Hamas began. Most of the soldiers, 21 of them, were killed in an attack in central Gaza when the terrorist squad surprised the fighters and launched missiles and rockets, according to a spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF. That attack, which Hagari said happened several hundred meters from the eastern border, was the deadliest single incident for the, the IDF rather in Gaza since the ground invasion began on the 27th of October. A further three Israeli soldiers, an IDF captain and two majors, were killed in a separate incident the same day in southern Gaza, The attack in central Gaza took place as the IDF soldiers were laying explosives to demolish terror infrastructure and buildings, according to Hagari. And again, Hagari is the uh, Israeli Defense Force spokesperson. A hospital affiliated with Harvard University retracted and then corrected dozens of academic papers. The Harvard University-affiliated teaching uh, hospital is seeking to retract or correct dozens of papers authored by four of its top researchers, including the hospital's CEO, following a probe into allegations of data falsification. Well, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in uh, Boston has already initiated six retractions to papers and 31 others are in line in the process of being uh, corrected, the hospital research integrity officer said. The latest uh, uh, accusations come just weeks after Harvard University President Claudine Gay resigned from her top post after she was embroiled in her own plagiarism scandal. Well, in early January, molecular biologist Sholto David, he published a blog posting a uh, blog post rather describing what he said were signs of uh, image manipulation in papers by the Dana Farber researchers. Well, David contacted Dana-Farber and Harvard Medical School with his concerns, submitting a list of papers he said contained problems. The most serious, he said, had to do with images of experimental results that had signs of copy and paste by software such as Adobe Photoshop. Well, those are pixel-perfect um, matches for the same area, but it's supposed to be a different sample, he said. So integrity is um, 
definitely something that they are looking to on these um, Ivy League campuses. Well, the Supreme Court sided with President Biden, allowing the Border Patrol to cut the Texas razor wire along the border with Texas. The court on Monday sided with the uh, administration as the details of lawsuits are being worked out between the state and the uh, federal government. The federal government arguing that they are responsible for border protection and security. However, Texas is suggesting that uh, Texas has an obligation to protect its people in the state in the absence of uh, the federal government and border security. It will all be decided ultimately by the court. But in the meantime, razor wire can and is being removed on the southern border. A woman's golf tournament responded after a trans female, a.k.a. male, won the competition and caused severe backlash. Well, a transgender golfer with dreams of making it to the LPGA, uh, the tour has won a women's tournament in Florida, which um, improved her chances, his chances of earning himself a spot in a qualifying tour. Haley Davidson is 30, came out on top of the NXXT Women's Classic on the 17th at the Mission Inn Resort and Club. Davidson, a Scottish native residing in Florida, won after uh, being three shots behind with two holes to go before forcing a playoff following a, uh, a play on the 18th hole, according to Davidson's Instagram post celebrating the victory. However, there's been an incredible amount of backlash against Davidson and uh, props to the um, to the tour. They responded with common sense, human decency and protection for female athletes and female sports. The next responded, allowing the players to vote on the Davidson situation, basically killing the transgender golfers progression without having to get their um, hands dirty. Riley Gaines also weighed in. Public pressure works. Don't make the mistake of assuming people will do the right thing unprovoked. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour and a conversation with Arlene Pellicane uh, on National Marriage Week coming up early February. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, National Marriage Week is coming up February the 7th through the 14th. It was launched back in 1996. It's a national movement. It's an annual celebration, and it's dedicated to promoting healthy marriages and to provide couples with great resources and ideas for ways that they can strengthen their marriage. Every year, it coincides with the week leading up to Valentine's Day, so mark your calendars to celebrate the joys, virtues, that marriage brings. Studies show that marriage leads to greater health, financial stability, and personal happiness, and it provides the best environment for raising children. The theme this uh, this year is love beyond words, and it will challenge couples to put their love into action and to provide couples with practical tools and resources. Well, here to talk with us about National Marriage Week that presents say, a chance for us to focus on rebuilding a culture of marriage for this generation is Arlene Pellicane. She is a top marriage and parenting author and speaker. She's also the host of the Happy Home podcast and the author of several books, including 31 Days to a Happy Husband and 31 Days to Becoming Happier, a Happier Wife. She's married to James, her husband of more than 25 years, and they have three children. She and her family are based in the San Diego area. Thank you so much for joining us, Arlene Pellicane. 
It's wonderful to be with you, Georgine. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate so much this opportunity that forces our attention to consider how are we doing in marriage? It's not just for folks who are struggling and on the verge of splitting up. This is for people who are committed to and uh, investing in a healthy marriage as well. How would you describe National Marriage Week and why it began in 1996? Yeah, it's one of those things where we can take it for granted, like, oh, yeah, marriage, that's a good thing. But now more than ever, we need to say, wait a minute, not only this isn't just casually a good thing, this is a really good thing. This is something that will help you as a person to have a strong marriage, and then it will help the society. So it really is one week where we can say, hey, let's put the spotlight on this. And let's show our children and our children's children and our nieces and our nephews that marriage, uh, unlike what they're hearing, the messages that they're getting, you know, that marriage is a good thing, that it's really healthy. It's something to aspire to. I think when you look, you know, at the social media feeds of a, a teenager, of a young person, they're not seeing like, oh, marriage is something to aspire to. You know, these are not the kinds of messages people are getting. Instead, they're getting messages like, well, you know, marriage is good as long as it keeps you happy or Mm. if you really want it, et cetera. And so we really want to help people see and know that marriage is something very good and worth celebrating. You know, I stumbled on a uh Uh, an annual survey. This happened to be the ninth annual survey conducted by Brigham Young University, the Wheatley Institute, YouGov, and uh, Desiree News. It was released in December. And it it points out that a large percentage of Americans don't know or outright disagree that marriage builds stronger families and is linked to better well-being for children. That's according to the American Family Survey. Um, This uh, is despite the fact that benefits have been proven. Uh, They say that it uh, may be due in part to nearly half of all U.S. children Children today spending at least part of their childhood in a non-intact family. Let's talk a bit before we get into um, National Marriage Week. Let's talk a bit about the value of marriage. We know that it's designed by God for our good, but what's the big deal? Why marriage? And I, I say that as a woman who is uh, going to be celebrating her 42nd year of marriage coming up in May. Yeah, the marriage is this commitment, right, between two people, that it's something larger than ourselves. It's something larger than like, hey, when I feel like it, I'll do it. It is a bond, a commitment, a vow. And when people keep their vows, it has this culture about it that it's like, hey, we are the kind of people who we keep our vows to each other and we are committed. And when children are raised in that and they're raised with a mother and a father who keep their promises who show up for them daily, who are available, that, you know, that environment is so needed for kids today. And, you know, and there are, you know, to look at children, and there are some that live in intact two-parent homes, and that there are um, some that don't. And And I think, you know, it is that the percentage of kids living with married biological parents. Um, it's, it's very similar, actually. In 2022, they said 58.9%. So about 59% of kids are living with biological parents versus 58% in 2012. So it's, it's somewhat similar. But I think we can anecdotally think about the people in our lives. And when you have someone that they're, they're living with a couple, a mom and a dad who really are in love with each other and stay in love with each other and are committed to one another. They are, they're entering life and adulthood with such a leg up 
such an advantage of being able to enjoy that love and stability, you know, and, and uh, they say that if we would have had the marriage rates that we did in the 1970s, that we would reduce poverty by 25%, that many times when couples split up, that, you know, that single parent that is raising the kids, it's, it's very difficult. And for us to realize, wait a minute, these things are linked. Like all this divorce is linked to poverty, is linked to, you know, a decrease in happiness, a decrease in, in mobility in society and all those things. Yeah. Now, let me just ask you to clarify one thing. You mentioned a moment ago um, a married couple that are in love with each other. Are you talking about perpetual romantic love? Because I think that's sort mm-hmm. of the notion that entertainment media has given us, unless we feel... Um, that we are in love and we have that, you know, first blush of romance feeling that maybe something is wrong. When you describe a couple as being in love, can you clarify? Because I think for most of us, we have that experience from time to time, but it does not sustain you through the, for my, uh, my case for the 42 years. (laughs) That's right. So this is the kind of love that at the end of the day says, I love you. And the other person says, I love you back. This is not the smoldering look of I cannot keep my hands off you. I love you so much. You know, I love when Dr. Gary Chapman of the Five Love Languages, you know, we've written books together and he talks about, can you imagine if a couple sustained that, you know, like, oh, I'm so in love with you. We wouldn't be able to go to work because we be with that person and we wouldn't be able to meet other people because we think, oh, I only want to be with my spouse, you know. So this is not that crazy, passionate in love, I feel love kind of thing that you must sustain through the years. But I think there is a thing of falling in love again and again with the same person, with your spouse, that there are those moments in the normalcy of your day where you go out for dinner and you reconnect and you realize, oh, I really like you. (laughs) Like, I realize why I, I fell in love with you. Or it's a special anniversary and, and you renew that commitment and you, you do the kinds of things you used to do when you were dating for one another. So I think that committed love does not look like that crazy puppy dog love, but that falling in love continues to happen. And it's something that you that you do stoke from time to time. Yeah, And it's deeper. It's richer. It has a history yeah. that uh, that brings a richness to it that, you know, that first blush doesn't necessarily. So there's yes. a lot to look forward to in the decades that follow that initial commitment. Well, let's talk about um, National um, Marriage Week. What's uh, the mission and purpose behind National Marriage Week? I think it's to get people to think, rethink marriage in a good way, in a good light, and also to strengthen married couples. So those who are married, they already believe in marriage, but maybe they're struggling to connect. Or maybe, you know, it's just getting harder and harder. And so National Marriage Week wants to come alongside of people, resource people. So when you go, for instance, to marriageweek.org, you can find free dating tips, you know, different things just to kind of mix things up. You'll find a couple's connection plan so that you can learn, you know, hey, maybe maybe we are on, we're together, but we have no idea what to say to each other, you know, so it has like different ideas of things to talk about, conversation starters, which kind of may feel silly, you know, after all these years, you mean I need help with conversation? But many times it's the same thing that you're talking about. So instead of just being business partners or trying to figure out the schedule or the kids, how can you really connect with one another's heart? And so National Marriage Week wants to be available to strengthen you and give you resources. Yeah, I just, I love that. Um, how is um, the the absence of committed, loving marriage impacting 
the younger generation with their regard to marriage and their intention to engage in marriage at some point in their future? Yeah. You know, they say that the marriage rate has fallen by 65% since 1970. And what they're looking at as per 1,000 people, how many are newly married? And what that means today as they, as they push that forward is that one in three young adults will never marry. One in three, which is, I mean, it's a pretty big chunk of the population that if you think about this 20-year-old, this 25-year-old, that they will never marry one in three. And here's the thing is, is they're not being taught or told by, you know, it's not being modeled or shown to them like, you know, think of the television shows of yesteryear. You know, it's I Love Lucy mm-hmm. and Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver and Happy Days. This, this is a, a, a husband and a wife who are sane, good people who are, you know, leading their kids. You know, I grew up on like Cosby Show and Family Ties and that yeah. is a mom and a dad. But today, those those examples are absent. And instead, you know, there's this whole picture of, hey, you can make your family however you want to. This traditional family model isn't really working. But the problem with that is that, okay, if these young people don't marry, you know, what are the ramifications of this? So obviously there's, we might think of the economic implication of, wow, if we don't replace our population rate, who's going to work? Who's going to support one another? How is this economy going to continue? But I think even much more personally than that, if you never marry, and most likely if you never have children, it means as you grow up into your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you have no kin behind you. You have no one underneath you. And if your siblings don't marry either, then you don't have nieces and nephews to fill in that gap. And that is really a very sobering thought to realize it's a short-sighted view of marriage that, hey, you know, I'm not going to do it right now. I'll do it later. Maybe I won't do it at all. But it's not accounting for, okay, in the last half of my life, do I really want to be that lonely? And you can see that, you know, people are already so lonely today. So this this is a, a huge caution, red flag, like, hey, think about your life. And, and do you want to have people, your people, in your life as you continue? And so I think it's very important to show young people, show kids, that's where it starts, show kids, show teenagers that, hey, there is a better way. And this marriage between a husband and a wife, it really is a beautiful thing that will keep you from loneliness and so many other things as you age. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Arlene Pellicane. She's the spokesperson for National Marriage Week. That's coming up February 7th through the 14th. For more information, you can go to the website marriageweek.org. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, but we do need to take a quick break. I'm Georgine Rice. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Arlene Pellicane. She's a spokesperson for the National Marriage Week. This uh, this year, the theme is Love Beyond Words. Uh, the week is February 7th through the 14th. It brings us right up to Valentine's Day. So it's a great season to kind of rethink how can I um, improve, think through some things that might keep our marriage uh, strong. How can we connect a bit better? How can we continue? to date one another and, you know, get away from time to time. Now, as I mentioned, the theme this year, Arlene, is uh, love beyond words. And it might seem obvious, but tell us a little bit of what's behind the thought of this year's theme. Love beyond words. You know, it's not just talk, but action, right? It's not just, oh, I'll say, I'll do this, I'll do that, but I do the opposite. You know, it's love beyond words. And you think of the marriage vow, for better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, till death do us part, 
this is this is a love beyond words. This is real commitment. These are real actions. And when people say, hey, I'm going to put actions behind this, then wow, what a difference that makes. So that's what we are wanting to champion is it's not just cheap talk, but we really do what we say. We keep our commitments. You know, they found that one, uh, the top predictor of if the marriage is going to make it and what the quality of the marriage is, it's commitment is is the couple committed to each other, to the marriage? Because if that happens, then there's greater trust between them. There's emotional security between them. There's sexual fidelity between them. And all of a sudden, now, you know, you're working with something really good. So we really want to encourage with love beyond words, live faithfully to the vows that you made on your wedding day. And we want to support that. So keep sacrificing, be generous, meet in the middle, all those kinds of things. Oh, I, I love that. And I love the, the notion that I can actually determine the quality of my marriage, the longevity of yes. my marriage. There are things that I can do that will uh, contribute to the level of uh, intimacy and friendship and camaraderie and joy that we can share yes. with one another. And at 40, almost 42 years, I, I love the idea that we can do things to, to revitalize and to keep that commitment that we made so many years ago. Yeah, years ago, I interviewed um, Dr. Marjorie Blanchard, Ken Blanchard, One Minute Manager, and she said, we just try to stay interesting to each other, Mm -hmm. and we ask ourselves, what's new on our resume, like our marriage resume? What have we done in the last two years that's new? And I loved that, just thinking, like, did we read a new book together? Did we try a new sport together? Do we have a new hobby? Do we travel somewhere different? Just continually adding to your marriage resume. Oh, I love that. Now, I was going to ask you, what are some practical ways that we can love beyond words? That's a great example. Are there others? Yes, we talk a lot at National Marriage Week about daily connection and weekly dating and getting away regularly. So having a rhythm that every day there's a point that you connect. It could be a short walk after dinner. It could just be sitting on the couch for five minutes. It could, you know, my husband, he likes to get his feet Um, feet rubbed, you know, so it's a foot rub at the end of the day and we talk. So he gets his feet rubbed and I get to talk. So it's lovely. You know, just (laughs) finding some kind of daily rhythm where you are checking in with each other and like, how are you? And and you're really, really, truly no technology. You are connecting. And then that weekly dating, you know, something to look forward to, something novel, something, you know, you put on your calendar, there's the anticipation of it. And it can truly be as simple as, hey, we're going to take a walk around the block or, you know, some days there's a Costco run together and we just get extra samples or something, you know, so it doesn't have to be this elaborate thing. But once in a while, make it kind of fun. You know, with the dating weekly, uh, it could be every other date that you plan that you say, okay, you do the next date and then I'll do the next date. It's as simple as, hey, let's let's do a date where we only spend $25. What kind of food and thing could we do for 25 bucks? And you just kind of infuse that fun and novelty into your dating and then get away regularly. Put a 24-hour kind of thing in your calendar one once a year, maybe twice a year in, in, you know, in your hometown, maybe there's a nice place to go, or maybe you can drive pretty much anyone can drive maybe one to two hours away and, and find a nice place. And 24 hours alone will do just wonders for your relationship. So those practices of connecting daily, 
date weekly and get away regularly. That does a lot for a marriage. Mm. You know, I think about young families. Uh, You've got kids in the home, and that is a strain on the time that you might commit. And then I think about people closer to my generation who are caring for elderly parents. There's a a level of exhaustion that goes along with that and challenge as well. You must invest in that relationship in order for the two of you to continue to grow and to remember the things that uh, drew you together in the first place. Yeah, it's so true. I remember a homeschooling family of five, and what they would do is they knew Friday night was like the quote-unquote date night, and what it meant was the kids got fed first, and then the mom and dad had a candlelight dinner in the other room, and that was like the special day that the kids could watch a movie, and that's how they did their date night. It didn't cost them anything. It was a regular rhythm, and it showed their kids, like, look at that. I mean, can you imagine as a child growing up, like, oh, Friday night's my mom and dad. They, like, sit in the other room, and they put a candle and a white tablecloth, and they have dinner together. <laughs> Like, that's a pretty good memory that they created with that date night. Yeah, not to mention setting a great example. Now, how can our love languages help us to love beyond words? Yes, because you might be thinking, well, I'm spending all this time with my spouse. Why are they still saying that they don't feel it? You know, and it could be because your spouse's words and that you need to say to them, hey, I noticed that you, you know, you've done this and you've done this and I notice how great you are with the kids and I notice how you're available to me and you listen to me and I appreciate that so much. And then all of a sudden, wow, now the spouse feels love. So knowing your spouse's love language, whether it's time or words of affirmation or acts of service or gifts, you know, what, or physical touch, you know, knowing, and it's really funny how God puts it together because typically you'll have the opposite. You know, I'm mm-hmm. a words person. My husband is physical touch. So he wants to be all cuddled up and everything. And I'm a physical touch is toward the bottom of a mind. So I'm thinking like, why are you touching me? <laughs> and I want him to compliment me and he just wants to hug me. You know, so it's all, you know, so a lot of it is recognizing, oh, this is how you like to be loved. And, and that's the part of the service toward each other. Like, okay, I'll hold your hand. I'll give you the back rub, the foot rub, because you like that. And then you'll let me talk, right? As we referred to earlier that he I give the foot rub but he listens so you kind of find those ways of melding those love languages and you learn to speak each other's love language yeah yeah you find them because you're looking and that that requires some initiative and effort on our part it's a an investment worth making and it pays dividends I look forward to being an old lady next to Dan Rice (laughs) who's going to be an old man so it's a good thing Speaking yeah. Freeman of you. That's right. <laughs> now, what are three secrets for a healthy marriage? Yeah, we have talked about some of them. One would be that date night, like keep dating each other. My husband um, of 25 years, sometimes he'll say, what did I do when we were dating? Like, how did I treat her while, while we were dating? And it makes him, you know, more tender, more considerate, mm-hmm. more like, hey, where do you want to eat, honey? Instead of this is where I want to eat, honey. You know, so the, the date night, so that's one secret. Another secret is the love language is learning the person's love language and speaking that on a regular basis. And then the third secret is marriage growth, like being committed to, hey, we're not just going to let this go on autopilot. We're not just going to have the same marriage lived year after year after year. We're going to grow. So we will pick up a new book or we will listen to a, a radio show or a podcast together. We will take an older couple out for lunch and ask them, hey, what have you learned about marriage and, and what's been your strength to stay together? So that seeking 
you know, the Lord tells us, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. It's, it's a seeking in your marriage of, I want to be closer to this person. I want to have a better relationship with you 20 years down the road. How do I get there and seek out that help? So having those date nights, speaking those love languages, and then being committed to growing as a couple. Those are three of those secrets. Now, we've been talking about the great resources that uh, Marriage Week uh, makes available. What's the best way for our listeners to connect? Yes, marriageweek.org. It's very simple, marriageweek.org. And you'll find uh, date night ideas, the couple's connection plan, and all sorts of resources to strengthen your marriage. Well, I want you to know that I will be downloading those resources because they're, yes. it's a great way to keep uh, the commitment that we've made some many years ago. Well, Arlene uh, Pelicane, thank you so much for encouraging marriages all across the Fruited Plain and for taking the time to be with us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Georgine. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. That is if you're in Portland. However, if you're in Seattle, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a great night. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segments of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, interestingly enough, NATO military chief is warning of war with Russia in the coming decades. He says that tectonic plates of power are shifting. Well, the military committee chairman of NATO, he warned of the possibility of a regional war with Russia in the coming decades and comments to military leaders during a NATO meeting in Brussels. This was on um, on Thursday. We have to realize it's not a given that we are in peace. And that's why we, NATO, are preparing for a conflict with Russia. Admiral Rob Bauer said, but the discussion is much wider. It's also the industrial base and also the people that have to understand they play a role, end quote. He went on to say it starts there. The four-star Dutch admiral added the realization that not everything is palpable, is planable rather, and not everything is going to be hunky-dory in the next 20 years. Hunky-dory. When's the last time you heard that? Well, during Bauer's opening remarks on Wednesday, he warned that NATO is facing the most dangerous world in decades. The tectonic plates of power are shifting, he said, as NATO has entered into a new era of collective defense. Well, German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius, he underscored that a Russian attack on a NATO member state could come within the next decade in comments uh, to the press on Friday morning. Our experts expect a period of five to eight years in which this could be possible, he went on to say, adding that an imminent attack is unlikely for now. But we also have to learn to live with danger again and prepare ourselves militarily, socially and in terms of civil defense. Again, this is the German minister. Well, earlier this month, Sweden's defense minister warned that growing regional tension with Russia, with whom it shares a border, could lead to war. For a nation for whom peace has been a pleasant companion for almost 210 years, the idea that it is an immovable constant is inconveniently close to ha- close at hand. Civil Defense Minister Carl Oscar Bolen told an annual defense conference held in Solen or something very like that. But taking comfort in this conclusion has become more dangerous than it has been for a very long time. Many have said it before me, but let me do so in an official capacity, more plainly and with naked clarity. There could be war in Sweden, end quote. Well, the Scandinavian country is uh, poised to join NATO. Nearly 90,000 NATO troops are participating in a series of military war games in the coming months. It's the largest such exercise since the end of the Cold War. 
Steadfast Defender 2024 will demonstrate NATO's ability to rapidly deploy forces from North America and other parts of the alliance to reinforce the defense of Europe, the military alliance said in their official statement. Wars and rumors of wars. Well, as the Middle East is again consumed by wars of terrorist aggression, Africa, too, is experiencing a rise in violence. Uh, Max Primorak uh, writes an article on terror groups and China are thriving while U.S. influence is declining. He writes that despite the region receiving billions in U.S. foreign aid annually, groups affiliated with al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have gained ground throughout the continent. As of 2023, Sahel, the Sahel region, a broad sub-Saharan swath of land stretching from the Atlantic to the Indian Oceans, represents 43% of all global deaths caused by terrorism. This is a 7% increase over, la- increase over last year, with no sign of abating. Well, all of this chaos has helped American ad- adversaries like China and Russia gain stronger footholds on the African continent, a continent rich in natural resources critical to U.S. commerce and national security, but a sanctuary for terrorists who seek to attack America and our allies. It's also a place where people deserve better than terrorism, violence, and authoritarian dictators. Yet U.S. influence in the region has declined since the Biden administration took office and rolled out a tremendously weak Africa strategy. Formed as a faction of Boko Haram, the terror group made infamous by its 2014 kidnap of 276 Nigerian schoolgirls, of whom 98 still remain in captivity. The Islamic State West Africa province is active in northeastern Nigeria and the neighboring Lake Chad area. With an estimated force of 5,000 fighters, Islamic State attacks anyone who opposes its extremist Salafi interpretation of Islam and while funding itself through kidnapping and extorting the local population. Well, to the West is Jama at Nasser al-Islam, while Muslimin, and I apologize for butchering the language, it's an Al-Qaeda-aligned group active in Mali, in Niger, in Togo, Benin, and Burkina Faso. The group focuses its attacks on security forces and political figures In 2019, the terror group attacked a United Nations base in Mali, killing 10 peacekeepers and wounding 25 others. Well, the State Department here in the U.S. has designated both Boko Haram and the other group, I won't attempt to mispronounce, as foreign terrorist organizations. Now, that designation allows the United States to respond in particular ways. Well, Central Africa is no exception. In countries such as the Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, and Rwanda, Islamic State-affiliated groups such as Allied Democratic Forces, threaten security forces, UN peacekeepers, and civilians. In the Horn of Africa, the terrorist group Al-Shabaab, it continues to operate in Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Mogadishu. The federal government of Somalia has struggled to contain the group, which now controls large swaths of the land. Al-Shabaab came to fame for its notorious 2013 attack of a Kenyan shopping mall that killed 60 people. Its goal is to establish a radical Islamic caliphate in the region. Well, following President uh, Barack Obama's takedown of former Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi in 2011, that country's massive arsenal of weapons and fighters went into the Sahal region, especially in Mali and Niger, and proved to uh, boon for region, uh, the regional terror groups. Endemic political instability and conflict followed, leading to humanitarian crises, economic contraction, mass flows of uh, fleeing immigrants north into Europe. 
Al-Qaeda and Islamic State-affiliated groups are both the cause of and exploit the chaos. They recruit local and unemployed youths and spread their extremist ideologies beyond Africa. Well, since January of 2020, there have been 13 coup attempts in Africa, six successful. Reflecting increasing global instability since um, the current administration and the, uh, uh, the choice to focus on promoting climate, gender and radical ideologies overseas. The reversal of democratic gains runs parallel to insecurity that West Africa and the Sahel region have been facing for some time now. That's a quote from Omar Touré, the president of the Economic Community of West African States. Meanwhile, regional instability, dictatorship and the corruption in countries with an abundance of natural resources have drawn the attention of global malign powers under the auspices of counterterrorism. Russia's paramilitary Wagner Group props up authoritarian regimes with the security advisors and security forces that fight against these terror groups in exchange for profitable mining permits, especially gold mines. But there are much more precious um, gems there as well. It was only um, supposed to be a few weapons and instructors, but when the Russians arrived, they saw the state of chaos in which the country is and thought that they could also do business, set up companies, buy raw materials, exploit mines. They came, they saw, they took advantage. A cardinal from the Metropolitan Archbishop of Bangu, Central African Republic, says, with terror-sponsored uh, violence gripping much of Africa, Western uh, companies are loath to invest there, pro- uh, providing communist China a clear path to serve as the continent's banker. China's Belt and Road Initiative, Beijing's trillion-dollar signature infrastructure building program to displace the United States as the global superpower, gives it access to Africa's natural resources, including half the world's gold and 90 percent of the world's cobalt and essential components of lithium-ion batteries. In Djibouti, China built its first overseas military base at one of the most strategic shipping routes in the world, providing it access to maritime routes connecting the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Sea via the Suez Canal. And while China's influence grows, U.S. influence in the region has declined since the administration issued its much-touted African strategy, a strategy that prioritizes an ideological agenda divorced from Africa's economic needs, and America's national security interests. Terrorism in the country is a complex and multifaceted challenge, and certainly more investment in education, infrastructure, and job-generating industries, rather, would help address the social, political, and related economic grievances of the civilian population that are constantly exploited by the terrorists. The failure of the West to effectively assist Africans to defeat these terrorist groups, however, makes economic development and social progress nearly Impossible. Well, to reverse course requires the administration adopt a new Africa strategy that prioritizes robust security assistance over the progressive ideology, more commercial diplomacy to counter China and other malign actors, uh, penetration into the continent and a foreign aid approach better aligned with U.S. national security priorities. But that's not where we stand today. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, women have taken the lead in home ownership. 
While popular culture and the mainstream media reference the notion of supposed cultural patriarchy as if it were undeniable reality, the actual data on the ground tells another story today. A case in point is the current rate of home ownership for single women. Across the country, as of 2023, a higher percentage of single women own homes than single men, roughly 13 percent to 10 percent, respectively. Indeed, in all but three states, single women homeowners rather outnumber single men. Furthermore, when it comes to total leadership at home, a majority, 51 percent, are now female headed. This is a significant shift from 1990 when fewer than a third of all American homes were headed by women. Some 43 percent of married households are now reportedly female led. Back in 1990, that number was 8 percent. These measures aren't everything, but despite the mainstream media's narrative, women are doing quite well in America. Joe Biden's fight for women is not just uh, for women does not extend to Afghan women or for that matter, the pre-born who happen to be women. Well, speaking of women, a major major focus of the president's campaign will be on women's rights and more specifically promoting abortion. However, one of the most negative consequential fallouts from the surrender to Afghanistan in Afghanistan to the Taliban has been the erosion of women's rights. According to a recent U.N. report on Afghanistan under the Taliban, women cannot hold a job if they are not married. They are banned from most public spaces. And if they are unmarried, they're forbidden from traveling without the accompaniment of a male guardian. All these restrictions against women have occurred since uh, the Afghanistan debacle, despite assurances from Taliban leaders that they would uh, be more moderate with their rules for women. A cancel, uh, cancel culture reversal. A school board is reinstated a Native American mascot. It was called a Lexington and Concord moment on the long march to political correctness. And perhaps there's something to that assessment. Instead of doing away with its high school's traditional Native American warrior mascot, a local school board has instead voted by a resounding 72 margin to restore it. A Pennsylvania community reclaimed its local indigenous history and a school's popular tribesman mascot last week, just two months after five new school committee uh, members won elections and ran on pro-Native American platforms. Elections have consequences as all seven school boards voted, uh, all seven of the school board uh, voted in favor of restoring the warrior logo and mascot. Uh, came from board members who'd been elected since a previous board had voted to eliminate the mascot. In a statement, the North Dakota-based Native American Guardians Association, which has made its mascot preservation case to the Southern York uh, County School District School Board, said the um, school board stands as a role model and blueprint for other communities fighting for their native names and imagery. Well, Canada is a, a liberty-loathing mess of a country. And Dana White doesn't seem to want its um, influence to seep into the highly successful UFC franchise. Well, during a press conference, White was asked by a Canadian journalist about the recent pre-fight comments of one of his UFC fighters, Sean Strickland, who last week let loose on a Canadian journalist with a blistering critique of uh, Canadian wokeness. When a reporter asked White about Strickland's comments and about the long leash he gives to his fighters regarding their comments, White shut him down um, in no uncertain terms. He used rather colorful language I cannot repeat. But I'll try to paraphrase. First of all, I don't give anybody a leash, White said, a leash, free speech to control what people say and to tell people what to believe. I don't tell any other 
human being what to say, what to think, and there's no leash on any of them. It's ridiculous to say I give somebody a leash, free speech, brother. People can say whatever they want and they can believe whatever they want. Well, kudos to White. Um, what's more to be said in Canada? Well, the mom of a straight uh, of a girl strangled at home by alleged MS-13 gang member is suing Homeland Security for $100 million. More unsettling aviation news. A Virginia Atlantic canceled a flight when a passenger noticed a missing wing bolt. The Harvard campus is littered with anti-Semitic graffiti ahead of the new semester. And a senior Hamas officer openly rejected a two-state solution, instead calling for Israel's demise. Hamas says there is no chance of a hostage release without the uh, the complete Israeli withdrawal from Gaza. IDF found a Gaza tunnel where 20 hostages, including a five-year-old, were held in inhumane conditions. And transgender golfer Haley Davidson won the women's event, increasing the chances of a potential LPGA card, uh, upsetting many. Well, on this day in history, 1368, China's Ming Dynasty, which would last nearly three centuries, begins as Zhu Yuanzhang is formally proclaimed emperor following the collapse of the Huan uh, Dynasty. 1789, Georgetown University is established in present-day Washington, D.C. 1845, Congress decides all national elections would be held on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. 1932, New York Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt announces his candidacy for the Democratic presidential nomination. 1933, the 20th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the so-called lame duck amendment, is ratified as Missouri approves it. 1950, the Israeli Knesset approves a resolution affirming Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. 1962, Jackie Robinson is elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. 1964, the 24th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, eliminating the poll tax in federal elections is ratified as South Dakota becomes the 38th state to endorse it. 1968, North Korea seizes the U.S. Navy intelligence ship USS Pueblo, commanded by Lloyd Pete Butcher, charging its crew with being in a spying mission. One sailor is killed and 82 are taken prisoner. Commander Butcher and his crew would be released the following December after 11 months of captivity. 2009, President Barack Obama quietly ends the Bush administration's ban on giving federal money to international groups that perform abortions or provided information on the option. 2009, New York Governor David Patterson chooses Democratic Representative Kristen Gillibrand to fill the Senate seat vacated by Hillary Rodham Clinton after Clinton is appointed U.S. Secretary of State by President Obama. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, LeBron James at 33 becomes the youngest player in NBA history to reach 30,000 career points during the Cleveland Cavaliers 114 to 102 loss to the San Antonio Spurs. Well, social media is not good for kids. This is not a news flash to anyone who's been paying any attention to the development of social media over the last 15 years. Indeed, big tech has been aware of this reality for years, but Meta The parent company of Instagram and Facebook is only now taking action. Meta is rolling out new restrictions targeting teen accounts that are intended to prevent certain harmful and damaging content from being accessible to users under the age of 18. According to Meta, these new restrictions will automatically filter out content from being seen on a teen's account feed. 
The specific type of content restricted under the uh, will be videos and posts that depict or discuss self-harm, graphic violence and eating disorders. These new content restrictions will be automatically applied to existing accounts and new accounts based on an account user's birth date. Also, unlike in the past, these restrictions cannot be removed before a user's 18th birthday. It would appear that Meta has been motivated to act now, just as more than 40 states are currently suing the big tech company, which they say knew about the negative impact of social media on minors and yet publicly denied it. When the bipartisan suit was raised last October, led by attorneys general from Colorado and Tennessee, Meta initially responded by arguing it had been investigating the problem and seeking to work with states to improve platforms for young people. Well, as a Meta spokesman stated, we're disappointed that instead of working productively with companies across the industry to create clear age appropriate standards for the many apps teens use, the attorneys general have chosen this path. However, according to the lawsuit, Meta had known for a while that its platform was especially toxic for teen girls. The issue boils down again to questions surrounding Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 and its protections for social media platforms. It's been argued that big tech has abused this provision, which is designed to protect a platform provider from culpability for content users may post. However, Meta has sought to have it both ways by creating its own acceptable content rules, which it uses to censor viewpoints with which it disagrees. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show, and we are out of time. I do want to thank Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.